You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where you go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwick. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwick and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about gods in your world. So Nathan, what are gods in D&D? Well, gods are basically, well, gods. They are divine beings that hold immense power, typically, and are the main source from which uh, clerics and other holy casters gain their magic from and take their magic from uh, in most settings. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that they they are particularly powerful beings. So how powerful are we talking here? Uh, I would say, uh, can you, you can hear me, right? Yeah. Okay, I was confused a bit because my mic wasn't giving me the feedback. Anyways, well, I would say powerful enough to say create mountains and such, but that's typically left to um, the primordial kind of things. Generally speaking, gods have immense power, able to do things that can change the world in immense ways, but most of the time, for whatever reason, they don't do, do that because of whatever reason typically due to not wanting to interfere with the fates of humans or and such in some settings they do do this but um perhaps they work in they work slowly or when they do do their thing it's just like this era changing thing like suddenly um giant mountain range appears between these two warring nations and then suddenly there's like a die down and this combat because well it's hard to attack so um slightly sorry but mostly not sorry that was actually a trick question nathan so the quote-unquote correct answer is a god has as much power as you want them to have. So as with all things in D&D, it is in the end left up to the decisions of the dungeon master. So in terms of how powerful gods should be in your worlds, the answer is just whatever. If you want them to be, you know, landscape reshaping behemoths, then they are. On the other hand, if you look at, you know, human mythology, like looking at Greek mythology, for example, the Greek gods by D&D standards aren't actually that powerful. They 
they've got a bit of magic at their disposal. They can hear prayers, they can teleport, and they'll have like some elemental affinity of some sort, like Zeus and his lightning. You know, Ares is sometimes depicted as having some fire at his disposal. And Hades, you know, could be necrotic if you wanted to go that route. But they're not actually, you know, that much more massively powerful. Like there are mortals who can like fight them to the st- fight them to a standstill. You know, you've got, you know, Heracles, of course, who's, you know, half god, but that's a separate category that we may cover another day. Point being, there is an enormous spectrum of human mythology that you can pull from to decide how you want gods to work in your world. How powerful do you want them to be? And this is very much one of those questions in my eyes that ought to be just something to think about when you're doing your world building building to decide, number one, how powerful are the gods? And then number two, and arguably even the more important question, is how active are the gods in your world? Because in typical D&D, most gods are not very active on the material plane. They will empower clerics and paladins, but even that has room for interpretation of, is that an automatic process that just someone who prays to a deity just gets that power? Or is it something that a god has to actively manage and that a lot of their focus and attention is just, okay, I have, you know, 12,000 clerics and paladins that I have to individually decide on to decide, you know, do I give them my power for the day? So how much focus a god has available, how much power they have available are all variable questions that a DM decides when doing their world building. And just to reiterate, think about this because it makes a huge difference. Because if you have these massively powerful gods, then of course that leads to the question, what the fuck are they doing then? So if there are these massive you know, issues in the world, then a DM should think, okay, if a god ha- is so powerful, what are they doing with their time? What are they doing with their power? So is it the kind of situation of the gods are just kind of bored and don't really care enough to actively intervene in things? Or is it that there are, you know, good and evil gods in existence that are constantly at war with each other? So they're freaking busy and just don't have time to deal with individual issues because they're trying to keep the world existing? Or is it that they're fighting against, you know, the demon lords and devils and that kind of stuff? Are there, you know, the great others out there, you know, the aberration gods. So there's so many angles that a DM can choose to take, and you can use any or all of them of deciding just what is it that a god actually does with their time? Like, is it just that, okay, or another just a typical power that gods are said to have is to have, you know, some form of multitasking. And whether that is just that they can immediately know, you know, their 12,000 clerics and immediately just do that with, you know, a single train of thought, or whether they just have the power to split themselves into having there be, you know, a hundred copies of their divine body. And then these avatars of them are able to just, you know, micromanage the many issues that 
that are the gods portfolio. So the exact way to do this is just as open as you want it to be. And because of the fact that the statistics for Dungeons and Dragons characters are meant for mortal adventurers. So when you're designing a god, mechanically speaking, then you can use those rules if you choose to, or you just say, fuck it, gods can just do anything with a wave of their hand because they just can permanently cast wish for all intents and purposes without the drawback that mortals have because it is specified that Wish is the most powerful spell a mortal can cast. That means, or implies at least, that there is higher magic that non-mortals have access to. So gods can be argued, by rules as written, to be able to do whatever the fuck they want. But anyway, the point being, think about how much power you want your gods to have. Think about what you want them to do with that power, their attention. There's a lot of fun to be had. And so a little bit of a tangent. But there's another classic trope in mythology of like the disguised god testing mortals for some reason, whether it's, you know, test of faith, like the story of Job, or whether it is just, uh, you know, the kind of Odin taking the form of a random old man just to see how kind a mortal will be in reaction to him. Or it's Zeus sleeping around. Or it's Zeus siring all of the freaking demigods. I mean, the point being, whether you want gods to be, you know, mortal plus, or you want them to be these, you know, unimaginable, you know, pillars, well, just above mortals and just looking down from their thrones made of light. It's uh, words, infinite in creativity. But gods especially are the biggest case where hand wavium is okay, where you can just, you know, hand wave it and just... Whatever I want the gods to be able to do, they can. But I do recommend to have an idea of what your gods are capable of and what they do and what they want. Because if you just have any type of gods in your worlds that are at all active, like even if it's just that they pay a little bit of attention to their clerics to keep up to date on what's going on, then that's still something. So to have gods, you know, not be totally enigmatic and to have them have wants and desires. So the phrase I used a minute ago, mortal plus, is the way that I like to think about it. And like, we'll get a little bit more into detail later on about how I use gods in my own world. But uh, just to say the phrase one last time, creativity, good. And that is just a thing that you can play around with. So the next question to think about in terms of them is what they are in terms of how do gods exist in your world? So thinking about the mythology in your own world is very much a topic worth consideration as well. So Nathan, what would you say would be worth thinking about in terms of like the mythology of your own gods? So when it comes down to it, uh, you must think about, first off, how did your gods come into being? And also about the things that your gods have done within the world. So these two main things things are what mythologizes gods. So first off, how how did they come to this power and um, how did they gain this, basically gain this divine um, strength that no other being has and to really solidify them as gods and people that like beings that do world-shaking things, what have they done? So did they grant this hero a blessing that allowed them to win a war, you know, that kind of thing. Indeed. 
So there's actually a few follow-ups on what you just said that I'd like to tangent into for a moment. So another part of that is just what makes a god a god. And the thing you mentioned at the end of blessing someone to help them win a war, like that has been a thing in some mythologies of the pantheon or even an individual god potentially can raise a mortal into divinity. And that is a very interesting potential angle in D&D, because depending on, you know, the rules that you decide on, if a single god has the power to ignite a spark of divinity in a mortal, then that would mean that there would very likely be a whole lot of like weaker divinities created, like as, you know, rival gods create others to kind of support their factions. And then, I mean, hell, that could be an entire campaign idea of just have there be just a a divine civil war. Well, talking about divinity, it's just one interesting that can be brought up in terms of that. So where do these gods gain their divine power? And is it finite? Because here's the thing. If you if your gods have finite divine ability, you can determine for one one um, example of which is typically it's tied to the amount of people that worship a certain god. And this can be quite interesting where you can have the have a rather weak god. Um, bless some relatively unknown smuck who manages to get further um, in life than they would without this blessing and spread the word of this god, hence of gaining this god power, hence of giving gods a good reason to even give mortals blessings outside of their own interests, kind of. So yeah. And there are so many ways about how a creature can become a god that that also is a really fun thing to think about. So is it, you know, the gods just came into being at the start of the universe? Like, think about your creation mythology, in other words. So did the gods just come into being at the start of the world as concepts defined themselves and as, you know, races or like they just formed and then created the mortal races in their own image? And then that's, you know, part of the reason for the various D&D races. Or it could be the other way around. Like if you could have gods as concepts, then... And it's a kind of more metaphysical thing of, okay, the races evolved on, you know, the D&D world and then their collective belief with plus the existence of magic created the various gods because of the mortal believing that they exist. And so magic made it so like there are, again, an infinite number of ways of how you could choose to use the existence of the gods, you know, or it could be the like more classic D&D thing of, you know, there were the primordials that ruled over the material plane. The gods saw it and said that it was good. So they kicked the primordials asses and took it. <laughs> like the actual like kind of story behind the D&D gods, like it really does touch on a lot of those like fun, just like what the fuck kind of mythology moments. Like one particular one that I like, we talked the other day about uh, the dragon deities briefly, uh, Tiamat and Bahamut. And a lot of people do not know their origin story is actually kind of amazing. So before them, there was the single dragon progenitor god, Io. Io was eventually slain. And I don't remember exactly the detail. It was something like his corpse was, you know, like his body was cleaved in twain at his death. And then from the two halves were created Bahamut and Tiamat. Or it was something something like that, or like from his blood 
throws the two dragon gods, one good and one evil. Like, but literally, it's that kind of weird mythology shit that created Bahamut and Tiamat. They both arose from the corpse of Io, the original dragon god. <laughs> and how simple or complicated or metaphysical or logical you want to go in your own world building in terms of your own deities is all as always up to individual dms so exactly what that involves is once again up for debate if you want it to be like the weird kind of creation myth if you want it to be collective belief if you want it to be you know just the universe itself created them if you want it to be others can rise and fall like a thing worth thinking about too is like how immortal are your gods because like again going back to the greek example there are ways for the greek gods to be killed and that happened occasionally through their mythology so in D, that's actually more literal because i mean there are entire modules devoted to getting a chance to fight tiamat i mean arguably i want to say she probably has like the most modules devoted to some form of interaction with her so so having there be stats for your deities is honestly something of a debatable question of do you want the character sheet that like Tiamat has what do you want that to mean for a god in your world so I'm just going to use Tiamat as the example because that is one of the very few creatures that is a god that has a character sheet in fifth edition Uh, older editions do have a lot more gods with their character sheets but there's really not a whole lot in fifth edition actually so Tiamat is a very powerful five-headed dragon, but like the character sheet isn't this all-powerful god. So the question then becomes, what does that mean? Is this just how powerful Tiamat is in the mortal plane? So do gods just have to take a less powerful avatar in the mortal planes? Or is it a situation of Tiamat just didn't choose to use her full power and then just, you know, split off a relatively weakened aspect of herself because her main focus was on, you know, more important things, quote unquote. So thinking about the rules of your gods is important of how they will interact with the world. So is it that they can only do like the immediate reshaping in a godly realm or do they just have power everywhere? And actually, that also will lead us to the idea of godly realms. So D&D actually does have a pretty laid out cosmology, like for the official rules. So there is the material plane where all the mortals are. And then there's the astral sea, which is a very strange area. I mean, I really can't phrase it much better than that, to be honest. Like it is. So gods have kind of pocket dimensions that they have absolute control over within the astral sea but then that's also where like githyanki have flying spaceship dimensional ship things uh it could be argued that that might be where aberrations are from or reside but that's you know a little bit fuzzy on that side but the astral sea you know is pretty conclusively like where the gods are which would mean then that you know the where the gods are is an actual place and considering that high level D magic actually can tell 
teleport you to other realms, that is also a consideration for particularly high-level games. So will you as the DM like have the knowledge out there like to get like the sigils or whatever necessary to have the coordinates to teleport to a godly realm? And we're going to go actually a little bit more into that uh, in Thursday's episode. But So I'm going to leave that somewhat vague for the moment, but just as a basic, just another thing worth consideration. So train of thought lost. All right. So now let's just transition into some more specific examples. So we're going to do this in kind of three parts. I think I'm going to go into a little more detail of like the official rules of gods. And then both Nathan and I will go into how we choose to do gods. So first up, the official rules. So this is from the Dungeon Master's Guide. There are subtypes of what a deity is, and it's sorted by something called divine rank. So basically, the higher the rank, the more powerful the god. And there are a few tiers of basically how powerful is a divine being, which makes sense. So the lower ones are demigods, which, you know, part god, uh, born from the union of a divine and mortal being. They have some divine attributes, but their mortal parentage makes them the weakest quasi-deities. All right, so quasi-deities are the weakest. So that is just something with a little bit of the divine in them, but they're not quite divine beings in their own right. And one thing that's actually interesting is that it is spelled out right here in the Dungeon Master's Guide that even these quasi-deities have one particular detail that I'm trying to find. There it is. In theory, they could ascend to godhood if they amassed enough work worshippers. And that is a tangent that I absolutely have to get into because it's important. So one more thing that is very much worth considering for the sake of gods in your world, do worshippers matter and how much? And obviously, there's a lot of ways that that could be done. So this is something that, of course, me being me, I took to its, you know, quote unquote, logical conclusion. And I actually made numbers of how many worshipers would a person need to ascend to godhood. And then, you know, thinking about, okay, well, how would you rank the faith generated power? And I have charts because a fucking course I do. (laughs) But the point being, yes, Nathan. (laughs) I I just want to say, Remy. Every single time you, you you talk about this kind of stuff, I, I I just somehow I think like I can't get any more impressed about how outside in you can be, but you know yet again, <laughs> thanks. But anyway, so for normal people, let me just phrase it this way. Think of do worshippers matter at all? Because some interpretations of gods die if they have no worshippers, because it is the worship that gives them their power completely. Other gods don't need worship and they simply are and that the worship is, worshipers are nice but just for the sake of minions but it has no effect on their power whatsoever or they are empowered by worshipers and more worshipers good which is part of why you know gods are constantly trying to recruit more to their faiths so how worshipers work is also worth consideration that should be another one on the drinking game anyway uh, so I tangented a lot. Sorry about that. I was talking about quasi deities first. So there's demigods, then titans, which are divine creations, and then vestiges, which is that. So like I mentioned a moment ago, those deities who have lost nearly all their worshippers and are mostly dead. So above the quasi deities are lesser deities. So uh, this is something that like has a specific place.
place where they live and have power, but they're not you know, the full, you know, greater deity, which I'll get to in a moment. So the example that I like in here is Lolth from the Abyss. So Lolth is the, you know, spider queen of the drow. So generally considered to be evil goddess, but from a D&D perspective is probably the type of deity that is actually most likely to have, you know, characters in a D&D game run into them because greater deities, uh, I don't like the way that this is phrased, so I'm just going to go through it so you'll see why. Greater deities are beyond mortal understanding. They can't be summoned, and they're almost always removed from direct involvement in mortal affairs. On very rare occasions, they manifest avatars similar to lesser deities, but slaying a greater god's avatar has no effect on the god itself. So having the whole god beyond mortal understanding is just something that rubs me the wrong way, to be honest with you. Because if you're going to use gods prominently in your world, then they should be beings that can be interacted with. Because otherwise, what's the point of putting them in your game? So in general, gods, if you're going to use gods prominently in your campaign or in your world, even just having them be, you know, actual beings just makes it a little easier. Because how would a DM even play a greater deity like that? Like if it is a creature that is just so big and powerful that they don't ever interact with the mortal plane, then they're not going to be interacted with so what's the point of you as a dm creating such a thing like it's an, and again this is my biased opinion here i am not saying that it can it cannot be done i'm simply saying that that would not be my style of how i would want to use deities uh your mileage may vary so there also are actually a quite a decent amount of information in the dungeon master's guide about gods of your world and they have like a listing of the official dnd gods uh like there's actually a link in the uh, to the player's handbook that has a, a list of D&D gods. And what's actually kind of fun about that is that it, the in the player's handbook, that appendix of gods has the D&D pantheons, but it also has a lot of the other ones. It actually also has like the Norse pantheon and what they would have, like what their like divine domains would be. And so you have, you know, Loki and Thor and all of them. And that's also just kind of pretty neat because I obviously love mythology. So having that option is pretty neat. Um, besides that, though, like the actual D&D listing of deities is enormous. So if you are planning to like run a proper D&D game, like of like the official rules, I mean, I highly do suggest uh, just keeping an eye on the deities list and thinking about that ahead of time because like the official list has a lot of deities so thinking about how big you want your pantheon to be is a, a you know also thing worth consideration because I, I honestly just am not going to be bothered to count all of them but there's probably over a hundred of various deities listed in the player's handbook so it's more like the kind of greek pantheon where they have a god of everything so we're thinking about how big do you want your pantheon to be as well uh shoot i tangented a moment ago and Got i lost my place of what i was gonna say 
All right. Anyway, uh, so back to uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide, though. That was a useful tangent, but still tangent. So there are a lot of descriptions about options for the pantheons of gods to use, whether you want there to be just a huge number of gods, or if you want there to be, you know, just a smaller pantheon, or if you want there to just be, you know, a single god in your world. Uh, oddly enough, that actually is something that's surprisingly rarely seen in D&D. Almost, I don't know that I've ever actually played a D&D game where they actually have a monotheistic D&D world. Like most, no, no, every single game I've ever played and actually has gone the polytheistic route, which somewhat makes sense because honestly, if you have multiple gods, then the conflict between them is arguably easier from the storytelling perspective to create, you know, big picture issues for adventurers to face. So there are so many options listed in the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, in the official books, that it does kind of push to use that direction. But regardless of your own individual religious beliefs, there are things that can be done. So you can decide if, you know, you are a person who has a strong faith, then if you are uncomfortable with the polytheism of Dungeons & Dragons, then don't use it. You can just have there just be God, even in the D&D world. Just because it is a world of magic does not mean that it can't be compatible with a person's individual beliefs. And in the event of, you know, issues that you may have between a DM and players, that is always something worth keeping in mind, that this is a fantasy world. So you can just make the rules whatever you want them to be. So uh, let's see. We've gone over uh, a lot of the various, uh, you know, what gods are, how can gods be used. Um, before we get into our examples, have I skipped over anything? Uh, also, one thing just to throw out there for you folks at home, uh, gods are a very large subject, obviously. So it is extremely likely that we are going to cover more information on gods in the future. So if you have any other branches of this topic that you want us to talk about, uh, if you have any questions about, I mean, anything really, but yeah, you know what I mean. Just uh, send us a message message or emails and we can always expand more on any particular aspects of this in the future so now let's go ahead and move on so nathan let's go through your own use and process of creation for divine figures in riftwake so when i originally created the riftwake pantheon the way i originally thought of it was the gods would be um, effectively somewhat like the Warhammer 40k Chaos Gods where uh, worship doesn't really like it does help but the, the main thing is that the more of that thing exists and the more of a certain action a certain emotion exists the more powerful the god becomes so for example um, there's a god of speed and travel and same and there's like a god of mountains you know that kind of thing and what it really came down to is that gods aren't really um, the traditional god that you see who are, who are sentient and stuff they don't really have personalities but they do have certain icons certain uh, images that people will see if they have visions of a god so they do have a somewhat physical form in which like a, a certain form that they will appear in generally speaking when you do see them 
if you could call it that. And the way that they show their power is actually they don't really show their power since they're not sentient. They they just exist. They are clouds of mental slash exist the the power that creates that keeps the world running. And what happens right is if you've heard of the exemplars, they are basically people who exemplify a god's uh, focus towards a certain thing. For example, Elminster Blackthorn is the exemplar of magic. The reason why is because he's a wizard and his main shtick is learning the knowledge to gain a better and wider understanding of magic. And exemplars typically take in the power of the, the entirety of um, this god's uh, whole divine strength and wield it as their own. And that's basically how exemplars work in my world and how gods work in my world. On the other hand, the route that I chose to take is, well, more than a little bit different. So I've been playing D&D in the same world for seven years or so, I want to say. So I've been playing pretty much continuously with, you know, at least somewhat most of the same cast of players. So as part of that, there's just been that escalation of scale where the characters have gotten to 20th level. And as I mentioned in Epic Games way back, that I played an Epic game before where it got into that godly levels. So the way that that worked was that I started playing D&D, like when I was first starting to DM with like the classic gods, you know, Bahamut, Moradin, all of them. But, you know, as just I grew as a DM and I just wanted to make the world my own and just as the players were into the tier of needing, you know, that godly level of challenge, the way that I chose to do that was to have there be an invasion of aberrations. So, you know, Cthulhu-esque type beings, and it was directly caused by the players like that actually was not my original plan but the players accidentally stumbled into like breaking the thing that kept such creatures out so it was directly the players fault that the aberrations came and actually killed the old gods like that was not my original plan but i realized just the opportunity when that event happened there's like oh this is going to be awesome so that led to the entire next campaign so first you know the gods were all killed and then there was just one deity left that managed to escape and then you know events happen next campaign happens and it was actually then the next party that my players made of you know other characters that eventually managed to beat back the aberrations and then succeed in taking back the divine domains that were you know destroyed or stolen divine domains that's a topic i forgot to talk about i'll get to that in a moment um anyway so they beat back the aberrations and then the party of those characters and the allies that they recruited to help them became the new pantheon. So now in my world, it's been, you know, two centuries and change after this. So it is new gods for all intents and purposes, if you think about, you know, a divine timeline. So the they are very much mortal plus in that it is almost entirely 
mortals who ascended thanks to, you know, beating the other, you know, the evil divines and the assistance of that last remaining god to help. So it is just mortals that became gods. And so a lot of the recent history in my world has been dealing with the consequences of that, of, you know, there are elves who are older than some of the gods. There are, you know, warforged constructs and just dwarves even for, you know, a 400 year lifespan in my world. So there are many beings that are just flat out older than the gods. And so that has just had societal impact of like, uh, you know, also some of the gods being morals before are slow to let go of their humanity for better and for worse. So I've just played with the repercussions of that and, you know, having there be, you know, friends that those gods made that are still alive. So there are opportunities where people like, you know, oh, yeah, you you know, the God of, you know, light and life, uh, he'll be at this bar on Thursdays. And so that there is way more active gods because they haven't acquired that aloofness that is typical of gods. So it is very much direct interaction with the gods. And, you know, in recent history, I decided to play with that a little more by having there be a lot of people that were dissatisfied with these people being the gods and having there be, you know, a rush of demigods as, you know, the typical adventurer who seduces everyone in sight doesn't stop that after becoming a god. And then suddenly there's just a flood of demigods in the world. And some of them got rather arrogant and decided to cause trouble. So there was a demigod war a couple of decades back. So having human-ish, like human plus gods in a D&D world is, in my opinion, a really fun way to kind of play with like what makes a god a god to play with what would someone who suddenly had all the power do with their time with their energies and just to think about you know the more human side of divine beings and that's just something that i've had a lot of fun with uh then so now uh let me move on slash back to divine domains because that is a very important aspect of godhood in terms of the DD rules so a divine domain is what a god is in charge of you know, magically speaking, it's kind of fuzzy on exactly what it refers to, but it's like the god of blank. And there are just a few kind of core ones. So it's scattered around in a couple of places, but the first place where this is shown is in the player's handbook, actually in the cleric section, because a cleric's power or its subclass is based on the divine domain of their deity. So you can really just look at the cleric subclasses list to kind of go over what are the various domains. So, you know, stuff like knowledge or life or light, nature, like those kinds of things. So how many gods you want in your world is, as always, up to you. But it is worth consideration when making a pantheon to just have some god kind of cover each of the domains 
domains. So that way you have an idea and your players can have an idea of, okay, if you are, you know, a cleric of nature, what God would that be in reference to? Or are there, you know, multiple gods who share multiple domains that are either allies or rivals? And then you have that potential interaction for the future to consider. So there are, uh, I need to come up with, I need a thesaurus. Just there are so many different ways that you can choose to use this. But in summary, gods are an enormous topic in general. And honestly, this is kind of just going to be our gods 101. So please contact us. Let us know what you want to hear more about. Do you want to hear more about like tips on how to stat out a god? More tips on Pantheon building? Like, let me know what you want to know and we'll do that for you because I love rambling about D&D and gods are an enormous topic with a lot of interesting potential story avenues. So in summary, gods are, you know, an extra powerful being, but how powerful you want gods to be and exactly what you want them able to do and how you want them to interact with your world is, as always, in the hands of a dungeon master and a fantastic opportunity for dungeon masters to build the world how they want it to be. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash riffworkpodcast. Give us stars low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, where you'll be able to chat with the cast and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at riffworkpodcast, on Facebook as riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash riffwakepodcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.